following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. So good to be here today for our second part in our series. The kind of key text I introduced you to last week comes from the book of Romans, the first chapter. And within that, uh, we find as follows that Paul, writing to the church at Rome, he says, "That That which may be known of God is evident to us because God has shown it to us. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his divine power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Wow. You mean even if there was no preacher on this planet Earth and there was no Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all the way through to Revelation, that we would be without excuse? Are you serious? That's exactly what Paul tells us. That we can know about God merely by looking at his creation. In 1985, Alan Sandage, the world's greatest observational cosmologist, was going to walk up onto a stage in Dallas, Texas, at an academic conference, a conference that was going to look at the origins of the universe. Alan Sandage had discovered the secrets of the stars. He had plumbed the mysteries of quasars. He had calculated the distance between different galaxies within the universe. And he had worked out the expansion rate of the universe. My question to you is, What have you been doing with your life? (laughs) Oh, this guy's been, he's been busy. He's been busy. And the conference conveners decided that when they looked at this question of the start of the universe, that they'd make it interesting. And they'd have a panel discussion. And one panel would be made up of atheists. These were the scientists who did not believe in the existence of God. The other panel was to be made up of theists, people who believed in the existence of God. Now, the greater bulk of the audience probably knew who Alan Sandage was based on his curriculum vitae and a few things I've already told you about him and the fact that he had published over 500 academic pieces of work, articles, across his career. They also, many of them knew that he was also virtually an atheist from childhood. Therefore, without a doubt, Alan Sandage, as he strode towards the stage, was going to, in the minds of everybody, sit with the atheists. I've entitled this morning's message, There Was a Beginning. There Was a Beginning. This is the second part in the series of God's Not Dead, Evidence for the Existence of God, in an age of uncertainty. Is there proof from the physical, natural, material world for the existence of God? 
I propose this morning to look at this subject across two, three sections. The first of these will be what we call steady state. We're going to look at the theories that predominated in the early part of the 20th century that accounted for the universe as we know it. Then in the second part, we're going to look at the arrival of a new theory that was going to overthrow the previous theory, and it's called the Big Bang. And then we're going to look at an argument that ties all of this together called Kalam, or the Kalam argument. And we're going to discuss, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that. Well, let's, what do I mean by steady state? For the first part of the 20th century, all scientists invariably believed that the universe was infinite and eternal. In other words, the universe had always been in existence in direct contradiction to what Genesis 1-1 has to say. You know what Genesis 1-1 says? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the scientists said, that was foolish talk. You've gone loco. <laughs> Don't you realize that this universe has always existed? Therefore, even the very first verse of the first book of your Bible is incorrect. It is wrong. It doesn't fall in with what science has to tell us. This argued the universe was infinite, had a beginning. It didn't, it didn't have a beginning. It was what they called the steady state model or the static model. The universe was largely unchanging. It had always been there. You didn't need a reason for the universe. Carl Sagan, the popular, he popularized science in the 1970s when I was a young nipper, and he said the cosmos is all there is, has been, and ever will be. That's all there is. It is Will, was and all that it will ever be is the cosmos. And many scientists love this. And the reason for that is because you didn't have to look for a cause. You didn't have to search for a reason for the universe. It just existed. It was very simple. Even Albert Einstein, we talked about Isaac Newton last time we were here, but Albert Einstein is probably the second greatest scientist that's ever lived, and he really liked the steady-state model. He was an advocate of the steady-state model. Why? Because he favored the idea of a self-existent universe because it meant the universe had no outside cause. There was no outside cause. Arthur Eddington, a famous British astronomer, he put it this way. He said, philosophically, the notion of a beginning of the present order of nature is repugnant to me. The idea that it could be a beginning to all of this is repugnant. It doesn't sound like a very scientific word to use, does it? It kind of suggests something else is going on here, that he was more happy with the idea of a self-existent universe than one that had a beginning. There was a problem with this, and this leads us to the second part of this morning's talk, and that is the Big Bang. Because evidence started to appear that challenged the steady state static model of the universe and our understanding of where it came from. The first piece of evidence came that there might be a beginning to the universe came from famous observations made by this man you can see behind me, Edwin Hubble. Now Hubble, of course, gives his name to the great Hubble telescope that is going around planet Earth and looks out into the stars. Hubble was an amazing astronomer. 
But he had an advantage over other astronomers in the 1920s, and it was simply this. He worked at the Mount Wilson Observatory, which you can also see behind me in California. Now, the Mount Wilson Observatory was blessed with the installation of a brand new telescope, and it coincided with him being there. And this telescope was this massive 100-inch lens, enabled him to see further into space and further in time than anyone had ever been able to see before. That sounds like a pretty good job. You know you're an astronomer and suddenly this amazing telescope arrives and you're able to see further than anybody else. You know there's got to be some prizes for that. Just happen to be in the right, right spot at the right time and you get this amazing telescope that you're able to see further than anyone else has ever been able to see before. And in the early part of the 1920s, what did he discover? Now this is common knowledge to you and I, but imagine you see this for the first time. In the early part of the 1920s, he looks through the telescope at little pinpricks of light which people had assumed were other stars within the Milky Way galaxy. And this is what he saw. He saw through this massive, amazing telescope that he wasn't looking at just individual stars. He was looking at galaxies. In other words, those little pinpricks of light that you might be able to see with binoculars or an inferior telescope or perhaps with your naked eye were not just one blazing ball, kind of nuclear-powered sun set in the heavens, but it was a hundred billion of them all gathered together into a galaxy. What does a galaxy look like? Well, let's look at Andromeda. Andromeda has a, you know, something like 100 billion stars. If we could make an estimation on this. This is outside the Milky Way galaxy. And it's just another galaxy filled with 100 billion stars. Can you imagine looking at that and realizing? My goodness, the universe just got a little bit bigger. <laughs> I mean, if the Milky Way wasn't big enough for you, baby, it just got a whole lot bigger. It was massive. The second thing he discovered came a little bit later, and his name is attached to it. There was actually another scientist who was also onto this. But what he discovered looking through his telescope is that these galaxies that he could see beyond the Milky Way galaxy were moving away from us. They're not steady. They're not static. They are moving at an incredible rate of knots. A lot faster than your Toyota Camry. Moving through space, these vast heavenly bodies. Now what does this mean? It means it looks like the universe is expanding from a single point. That means if we had a VHS player, you know a VCR tape, and we put, and, we, and it was of the entire history of the universe from the present day to when it began. It would mean that those galaxies that are spread out like this, would all start, as the tape started to rewind and we played it backwards, they'd all start moving and converging together. And these galaxies, Andromeda, Milky Way, and all these other galaxies all start coming together. Not to the size of the Milky Way galaxy, not to the size of our sun, not to the size of Earth, not to the size of a basketball, a tennis ball, a golf ball, a squash ball. I can't think of any smaller ones, but we can talk about the, pin of a he uh, the head of a pin. No, 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 smaller than that. They say mathematically and logically to the point of nothing. To the point of nothing. Do you know when Einstein turned up 
at the Mount Wilson Observatory and saw what Hubble had seen, he said, I have made the biggest mistake of my career in supporting steady state. The, of, the evidence was so clear. He said it was the biggest blunder of his academic career. Wow. So it all came from nothing? Yes, nothing. That's what this, uh, this Big Bang really suggests because it tells us that there was, before this universe existed, there was no time, there was no space, there was no matter, and there was no energy. There was nada, zilch, zero, nothing. And then, bang, it all came into existence. And that's why they call it the Big Bang. Do you know that when people first started to suggest that the universe began with a massive explosion from nothing, they called it the Big Bang, not because they felt it was an accurate description of something, but as a term of mocking. It was a term of derision. Oh, so you're a supporter of the Big Bang. <laughs> Poor you, you ignorant soul. You know, that's, that's a lot of people felt that, a lot of scientists felt that, a lot of scientists, they said, you know, you support the Big Bang. Wow, the problem was, ladies and gentlemen, the evidence started to pile up, of course, through observations of the movement of these galaxies away from our own. And the second biggest discovery that has really nailed it down to the floor about the Big Bang came in 1965 by two men working in New Jersey at the Bell Labs. And they are Arno Fenzies, Penzies and Robert Watson, who you can see here. They're very happy because they're going to get a Nobel Prize for all of this. And they were with this big antenna you can see in the next picture. And they weren't looking for anything. They weren't looking for what they became famous for, but it's almost as though they tripped on it. You see, scientists had said that if there really was a Big Bang, there should be a background radiation, a residue, an afterglow of that massive explosion that could be found. They discover it using this, they discovered this using this antennae, and they got a Nobel Prize for it. It was the afterglow of the Big Bang. Um, just a little side point here. They didn't know what this noise was. Uh, they thought it might have been uh, bird droppings in the antennae. <laughs> so they went out to try and clean it, and it was only later in discussions with other scientists that they realized that what they were listening to was what had already been theoretically said should exist. Let's look at an artist's representation then of this Big Bang argument for the beginning of the universe. Now this, of course, is not really what it was like. This is just an artist's representation of it. But you can see that we are on the far right-hand side, and then time goes backwards to the beginning, but notice how the, the universe starts to contract ever so slowly, that gets down to the small point, and then the artist has done the big bang with this flash of light. The, the key thing I want you to notice is in this, with the big bang, you get time running from left to right. You also get space. As the universe expands, you get more space. And within that space and with that time, you have matter. But prior to that, our big flash of light, on the left of the universe, before the universe came into beginning, is there any time? No. Is there any space? No. Is there any matter? No. And this is going to become important 
very, very soon. Advances made, the Big Bang model, the standard explanation used by scientists in explaining the beginning and structure of the universe as it appears to us today. Well, this brings us to an important question, doesn't it? If it began, who began it? That's a very serious, scientific as well as theological question. This brings us to Kalam, the Kalam argument, which, by the way, is very highly regarded, and you'll find it in all kinds of discussions centered around the existence of God. One of the reasons the Big Bang took so long to gain acceptance was that it begged a very important question. Who or what caused the Big Bang? There was a natural resistance to the idea of the Big Bang because you had to ask that question. Before we answer it, we need to ask another question. How does the fact the universe had a beginning lead to the question of a cause? Do we need to actually find a cause? Couldn't we just say the Big Bang happened? Do we have to have a cause for the Big Bang? Well, this brings us to our Kalam argument. This goes back to the fourth century in a Christian philosopher called John Philipponus. You've probably never heard of this gentleman. But John Philipponus lived in a society was surrounded by pagans who made fun of him and his belief in a Christian God who, who created the world. You see, the pagans that John Philipponus dealt with in the fourth century said the universe and everything had always existed. Sounds like a familiar argument, doesn't it? That it had always existed. And he thought to himself, how do I counter this argument? And he came up with this model that was picked up by theologians of different religious persuasions, including Islamic theologians in the medieval period, which is where it gets its name from, the Kalam argument. And this is how it goes. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. So now we're going to get down to the heart of this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. It's very simple, it's very elegant, and I think pretty watertight. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. And what we're going to do here is something that's pedagogically useful. You're not used to it. But I want you to just behave a little bit like Pentecostals, and so I don't have to ask you to do this twice. You know, it's always terrible when you say, oh, come on, folks, make an effort. But just pretend you're Pentecostals, if you're not already, this morning, and make an effort here, because what we're going to do is we're going to have a bit of group participation, all right? So you're going to read this with me, each of these premises, and then the conclusion, all right? So we can do this after three. One, two, three. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Excellent, ladies and gentlemen. It's not so difficult after all, is it? Well, let's look at these premises in, in, uh, one after the other. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Now, how did you get here to church today? Did you go to your garage and find a car that had spontaneously appeared overnight? Or was that car already in existence and somehow it was there because you perhaps purchased it off Trade Me from a car dealer? You see, your car began to exist and therefore it has a what? A cause. Now, it might be Mr. Toyota, Mr. Honda. For some of you, it might be 
I don't know, Mr. Audi. It may be, you know, you know, it has a cause. Then you got into the car and you drove here to church this morning. Well done. <laughs> Make, it actually boosts my confidence to see people here. And you, you drive on the road there. And, and do you know the road just didn't appear that night? It actually has a cause. Someone designed it. They planned for it. They didn't plan very well because they would have made it four lanes to start with, wouldn't they, ladies and gentlemen? Two lanes one way, two ways the other. At least God knows what he's doing when he plans. Talk about the Auckland Council needs to do something about this, ladies and gentlemen. How many single lane roads have you seen that you know within five years will have to be two lanes and they never took into account. But you were right yet again. The merciful thing about it is it's only your taxes and rates that are paying for it. Brilliant. Okay, so but the road was prepared. Then you came to this building. Do you know this building has a cause? Is some bureaucrat down in Wellington who looked at some figures, demographics for the region. He said, you know what? They'll need a middle school right here in Albany. We'll get an architect. We'll get a builder. We'll provide the funding. This building appears. Do you know you sitting here on your backside on those seats have a cause? It's your parents. <laughs> it's called the birds and the bees. And if you don't anything about that, we can pray for you later over here. There were people gathered to talk to you about that if you know nothing about it. It's the birds and the bees. You see this picture up here behind me? Everything in the universe, by the way, has a cause, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you've worked this out. In fact, science, some people define science as a search for causes. Why does the moon travel the way it does around the planet Earth? And how does Earth travel around the sun the way it does and maintain its orbit? That's a search for causes. Why do two chemicals added together perhaps create fire? What's the cause of that? Science is a search for causes. Why is it when you hold something and it drops to the ground? What's the cause of that? That's what science does, ladies and gentlemen. It's a search for causes in one sense. Now, I'm actually in this picture on the left-hand side pointing to a couple of young men who are smoking cigarettes. I am very young there. It is in my seventh form year at Marlborough Boys College in uh, Blenheim. And when we went to this college, we had a beautiful common room. It was a massive common room the seventh formers or year 13 students had, big enough that you could set up barricades at either end and throw things at each other. It had a kitchenette, um, a fridge. I mean, we were living the life of luxury in the 19, early 1980s, ladies and gentlemen. And then there was a bit of a cloakroom. But, you know, we didn't have any music. And so what we did was we put some money together and we bought ourselves a stereo. Now this thing was big enough to be an anchor for the Titanic. It was made of wood, it had valves in it, but it had this cool uh, turntable on it which you could put a record on. Now, when I came in today, I asked my son about an LP, and he looked at me like, what are you talking about an LP? Well, I've brought an LP in. For, this is going to be a bit of a history lesson for some of you boys and girls. This is a, an LP simply stands for long playing, long playing record, all right? And so you take this out, and we brought our records along because we brought the stereo. There's actually a little hole in here. You put that on the stereo turntable, turn it up to 33 and a half, was it 33 and a third? And then you just let that baby go. Now the beauty of the stereo was it had an auto replay. As so you put the vinyl on there, it would run through the four, five, six tracks on the first side of the album, and then it would go back to the beginning, and it would start again. The trouble with this is, and I was a big fan of the Kinks and a few other bands, and the big trouble with this is that um, we did it during class time. We were, near, we were on the second floor of this building. In fact, the building right behind here, the common room was on the second floor, and next to us was a computer lab. 
then next to that was a uh, science block, then we had Eng uh, 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 history teacher next to us on the other side, and we had French, and then we had English, and then down below was geography. Oh, it's just, see, it's, so, it's just indelible, stuck in my mind, my school days, ladies and gentlemen. And anyway, the principal got sick and, vice principal got sick and tired of us playing music during class time. What's the problem? You know, seriously, what is the problem? <laughs> I'm just doing, re remembering channeling my kind of 17-year-old attitude, 18-year-old attitude. You know, what's the problem? He locked us out of the common room. But he didn't know something, that I had got bored during the year, and I had taken a stool, like a four-legged stool with metal legs, and I had bent one of the legs like this until it broke with metal fatigue, and then I had the sharp weapon. And I went into the cloakroom of the common room and it had this soft kind of particle board above it. And so I started chipping away at it, as you do. And, as I, and, and, and it took a while. It's like Escape from Alcatraz, isn't it? And so I chipped away until there was a manhole there and I, and I managed to get up into this false ceiling and it gave me an access to the history classroom next door. Well, the principal had locked us out of the common room, so he thought. Because when there was no history class, what did Adam do? I went in there, into the false ceiling, down into the common room. And what did I do, ladies and gentlemen, while class was on? I grabbed an LP, long playing record. I took it out of its cover. I put it on the turntable. I turned it on. I turned it up as every officiato of rock and roll knows. I turned it up to maximum, which is... 11. And then, ladies and gentlemen, what I did was I put it on auto replay and I left. And so what happened was we heard this type of music wafting through the corridor. Well, as you can imagine, <laughs> this is not going down well with the teachers. So teachers, you can imagine, are going to the door, rattling it, trying to get it. It's locked. Who's in there? Who's in there? And has locked the door. So they had to go get the principal. So he's a long way in the other part of the school. He comes in with the key. He opens it. He looks in there. Nobody's there. <laughs> he hunts around. He searches around. He turns it off. And then at a later date, he gets all the seventh formers together. And he says these words. I don't know how you did it, but one of you somehow got into that locked room and turned that music on. And he said, maybe somebody climbed the wall, which is impossible. It's two stories. It's one of those old, you know, older buildings. But I had this, you know, visions of me in blue, red, and white spandex. New Zealand Spider-Man making my way up the wall like this. It was kind of, and, and you know, he didn't know who did it. I did it. In fact, it's probably, aside from eating lunch, my greatest high school achievement, ladies and gentlemen. But you know, he never, see, he, never, he never once crossed his mind that that music didn't have a cause. That somehow the machine had spontaneously got the LP on it, turned it on to auto replay, wound it up to 11 or whatever, and, and just ran. He knew there was a cause. He just didn't know the particular individual. Everything in the universe has a cause, ladies and gentlemen. That first premise is pretty watertight. Second premise was the universe began to exist. We already know this because we have evidence from Edward Hubble 
and of course our two Nobel Prize winners and subsequent evidence as well. This brings us to an amazing conclusion that is really undeniable based on those first two premises. Therefore, the universe has a cause. What does this mean for the question of God's existence, though? I want to talk to you a little bit. I'm going to give you a quote in a second from a man called Robert Jastrow. Robert Jastrow was the director of the Mount Wilson Observatory. He was also the founder of NASA's Goddard Space Studies Institute. He, is also an, he was also an agnostic in faith. In other words, he had no, you know, he, he's not carrying any baggage of whether God does or doesn't exist. He just doesn't know. And this was the question he asked. He said, does the Big Bang point to God? He said, does the Big Bang point to God? As an agnostic and as a scientist, it's not an unreasonable question to ask. And this was his conclusion. Let's look at this. He said, astronomers now find they have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation and they have found that all this happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover. That there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, scientifically proven fact. Do you know what Arthur Eddington had to say, the man who said the beginning of the universe was repugnant to him? When he saw this evidence and he had to change his position, this is what he had to say about the origins of the universe, this British astronomer. He said, the beginning seems to present insuperable difficulties unless we agree to look on it as frankly supernatural. Now, when you and I think of supernatural, or the general public thinks of the word supernatural, it's very different to the way a scientist would use it. See, we think about things that go bump in the night, or we might think about films that have ghosts in them that are supernaturally themed films or books. When a scientist talks about supernatural, he's using it in a strict sense. It's a compound word. It has two parts, super natural. The second part we easily understand is the material, natural world. But the super part has to do with that which is greater than, beyond, bigger, or transcends. In other words, the cause for the universe must be bigger than the natural material world. It must be greater than. It must be outside. It must transcend. Can you see the difference here? So when a scientist talks about, uses the word supernatural, they're saying it must be something outside of the universe. Why is that? Well, the cause must be outside the universe because if you think about the universe, time, space, and matter did not come into existence until the Big Bang. And this means that this cause must be Obviously, timeless, spaceless, and immaterial. Let's have a look at an example of this. This is what a, a kind of a summary of this. The scientific evidence in the Kalam argument gives strong grounds for believing in the existence of an uncaused, timeless, spaceless, immaterial, and enormously intelligent and powerful creator of the universe. Why? We saw our diagram of the universe because prior to the universe coming to existence, there was no time. 
so the cause must be timeless. There was no space, so the cause must be spaceless. There was no material, so the cause must be immaterial, ladies and gentlemen. And then if you think about the universe, just think about it for a second. Our sun, blazing in all its glory, dwarfs any kind of power that humans could create. If we gathered all the nuclear weapons together and exploded them all at once, I'm not suggesting we should do that, but if we did that, it would be nothing compared to just a small output of what the sun does every second of every day and has done for such a long time and will continue to do so. And there are a hundred of billion of them in just our galaxy. How powerful would you have to be to create a hundred billion galaxies with a hundred billion suns? And you know what those galaxies do and all of matter does? It works in this beautiful cosmic ballet of physical laws, of gravity, celestial motion, first, second, third laws of thermodynamics, the laws of attractions, all across the universe. To make something that intricate, complicated, and it all holds together, wouldn't you have to be somewhat intelligent? Wouldn't you? You see, there's only one person I know of that fits this job description. There's only one person I know who has a curriculum vitae that is worth submitting, and that person is God. It is God. There is no other, ladies and gentlemen. There is no other explanation. Because that which may be known about God is evident to them. For God has shown it to us. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his divine power and Godhead so that we are without excuse. When Alan Sandage walked up on that stage at a conference to discuss the beginning of the universe, it was taken for granted that he would sit with the atheists. The greatest observational cosmologist, a cosmologist is simply a person who looks at the cosmos, its beginning, its end, and its structure, the world's greatest observational cosmologist, who had accumulated the most prestigious prizes in his field, would take his place with the doubters. To the surprise of his audience, he stepped on the stage and went and sat with the theists, with the people who believe in God. He sat with you. And they really wanted to hear what he had to say. And when he got up to speak this in a nutshell is what he said. He said that the cause of the universe, where it came from, the Big Bang, cannot be explained within the realm of modern physics. He said the sudden emergence of matter, space, time, and energy pointed to the need for something that was transcendent, something that was greater than, bigger than, beyond the universe itself. And then he revealed to his audience that at the age of 50 years, he had decided to become a Christian. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, 
Or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.